Morning, church. If you do not have a Bible this morning, you're going to need one. If you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and put your hand up and our ushers will get you a Bible that you can use to follow along in as we dive back into the book of John this morning. And uh, if you are receiving one of those Bibles and you currently do not have a Bible of your own, please take the one that you receive with you. Keep it and dig in, especially to this book that we're going to continue to look at this morning, the book of John. Um, Thank you for being here this morning. My name is Paul McVitie. I am the lead pastor here at Chapel Hill Church, and I will not be borrowing Scott Lyon's pants. Um, And I would encourage you to not do the same yourself, please, okay, because I can just see that blowing up on social media. Borrowed Scott Lyon's pants today for a free cup of coffee, and there goes Chapel Hill Church. Just, uh, yeah, let's not do that. Let's not borrow his pants. All right, Um, well, were you listening to the message in the video? I was surprised at how I reacted the first time that I saw that video, and it got to the point where he says, slow down, and how hard that hit me. And then we heard truth after truth, promise after promise, and God has given us so much to draw strength and life from, and it's exactly what we need from week to week, day to day, God's promises, God's truth, God's strength. And I love it when someone takes God's promises from various parts of the Bible and strings them together like they did in the video. Uh, Last week we looked at another section in the conversation that Jesus had with his disciples on the way to the Garden of Gethsemane. Um, Jesus' crucifixion was rapidly approaching. And in fact, next week we're gonna look at the prayer that Jesus spoke and is recorded in John 17. And then the following week, we're gonna be with Jesus and his disciples in the garden and our Easter season here at Chapel Hill Church will begin. Start our Easter season, it's coming soon. But before that, there's a passage that we wanna take a look at together. And this morning, we'll listen in to a moment of revelation for Jesus' disciples, and a few incredibly encouraging statements by Jesus, both for his disciples then and for every single one of us now, for all of us now. So turn to John chapter 16 and verse 16. John 16, 16. We're going to read the rest of chapter 16 today. Uh, Chapter 17, as I said, is Jesus' prayer. The rest of chapter 16 is a conversation. Jesus speaks and his disciples respond. Jesus speaks, and his disciples get super confused. Jesus speaks, and his disciples get even more confused. Jesus speaks, and his disciples get clarity, finally. And then Jesus speaks again, and his disciples get encouraged, and I hope that you will too this morning, from what Jesus says. This morning, we're going to read part of our passage, and then pause and talk about it, and carry on like that until we're done with chapter 16. So enjoy the ride. This is John 16, verses 16 through 20. That's where we're going to start this morning. And here's Jesus talking. And he says to his disciples, A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, Is this what you're asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? 
Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. So this is not the first time that Jesus has spoken to his disciples about his upcoming death and resurrection. He has said this before. Remember him telling them that he was going away and they couldn't come to where he was going? They had heard this before. He told them that he would be lifted up. He told them that he was going to prepare a place for them and he would come and get them and bring them to where he was. And this time he says, in a little while you won't see me again and then a little while later and you will see me. I enjoy digging into the the resources that are available for for me to help me understand the Bible better. Um, my, My desk is a dead giveaway for that. Um, So are my overcrowded bookshelves and and the search history on my laptop. What I'm amazed by in this journey through John that we're taking is how many Bible scholars, authors, commentators, and so on, criticize the disciples at this point in the story. They ask, they still don't get it? And they write about the lack of intellect on the part of the disciples and how thick-headed they were. So let's test that perspective before we jump on that bandwagon. Think back about five years or so to when I had been your pastor for three years. I've been teaching and shepherding, and then one Sunday morning, I stand up in front of you, and this is what I say. Church, in a little while, you will not see me any longer, and then after a little while, you will see me again. You'll be sad when I go, but the people of Dakota County will celebrate, but then your sorrow will turn to joy. Okay, so honestly, how many of you would think, oh, he means he's going to die a horrible criminal's death, and then after three days, he's going to rise from the dead again, and we'll be happy. (laughs) Okay, now I understand that Jesus had given the disciples in the whole world plenty of evidence that he was the Son of God. But we have to cut these guys some slack. They didn't have God's spirit living in them like we do, teaching them all things. They were faced with a future scenario too bizarre to grasp, especially the rising dead thing. They didn't get what he was saying. They didn't get it. And so they're looking at each other, confused and frustrated by his words. What is he saying to us? And Jesus, of course, knows that they're discussing their frustration, and so he interjects. He tells them that they're going to be sad, but the world is going to rejoice, but their sadness will turn to joy, and that wasn't particularly helpful. But he's giving them some insight into what's going to take place. And it's all part of the very big picture that he's painting for them of God's perfect plan to save the world. And so as we've recalled before, when John is 90 years old and writing his book, this is all going to come out as John paints for us the picture that Jesus was painting for him a long time before then. So this group of 11 men, remember that Judas has gone to carry out his betrayal of Jesus, this group of 11 men is confused and Jesus knows just what to do. Jesus talks to them about childbirth. Yeah, it does sound ridiculous, but that's where he goes. Verse 21, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. 
Okay, so picture John, who's about 15 years old at, at the time he hears this. So is he smirking while Jesus is talking? And he's been following a man named Jesus who said weird things like this. Why the birth analogy? Why do you do that? Well, throughout the Bible, especially through the prophets, the pregnancy analogy was used to speak to Israel. Labor pains referred to Israel's state more than once. They were suffering as they waited for God's deliverance. And so this analogy fit well with what Jesus was saying here. Deliverance was at hand. He also knew that the disciples themselves were going to hurt. I still cannot imagine what they were feeling as they watched their friend, their rabbi, their brother, their teacher, their everything suffer and die like a criminal. Their hearts were broken. They lost hope. They had to have been at their lowest point and Jesus could see what their pain would be like. And he compares it to labor pains. It was going to be intense for a little while, but then the birth would take place and the joy would wipe out the pain. New life was entering the world. The eternal, abundant life that Jesus brought for us was about to be birthed into our world. But it would take some pain to get there. A price had to be paid. Jesus had to suffer, particularly the pain of his father, his own father pouring out his wrath on him. God's wrath being poured out on the son. In reality, even labor pains could not adequately describe that pain. But it was a symbol for the disciples. There was pain and sorrow coming and Jesus knew it. And he was trying to give them some warning, but he was also trying to encourage them that the pain would be temporary. There was joy on the way. So Jesus carries on in his explanation of what's to come. Verse 22, I love this verse. He says, so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Let's talk about this joy. This is significant. The joy theme is going to run through the rest of our passage here today. And there's something very meaningful that I hope we take away from this. We've heard Jesus talk about the joy already in our passage. In verse 20, Jesus promises them that there there will be joy. They are going to experience joy no matter what comes before that joy. The joy that he's talking about will be birthed out of sorrow. Jesus acknowledged that they would hurt for a while But then there would be joy. The anguish of labor pains was coming, followed shortly by the joy of new life. And now in verse 22, Jesus makes them another promise. And we have to see this. He restates the fact that they will have sorrow. In fact, they have it now. They're already starting to feel that. But when he sees them again, still a mystery statement to them, their hearts will rejoice and no one will be able to take their joy from them. So let's be real with this. If Jesus was standing in front of me right now and he said, Paul, no one can steal your joy, how would I respond? How would you respond? And honestly, I think I would recall the last time that someone or something did steal my joy 
and I'd allow cynicism and doubt to flood into my mind, and I'd have a hard time taking him seriously, even though I know that Jesus keeps his promises. How could he say that? How could Jesus make such a crazy promise? No one will steal their joy? I want that. I want to live an experience of joy that no one can steal, don't you? This must be possible, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have said it. So what's the secret here? Well, it's not really a secret. It's just not something that we or I typically consider on a regular basis. This is not about whether or not Jesus can keep his promise. It's not about whether or not I can produce joy in my life and hang on to it. This promise is possible if we're drawing our joy from the right source. If I seek and find joy in my circumstances, this promise does not apply. I get a lot of joy from my family. My wife and my boys bring me endless joy. They really do. Even my dog brings me joy. Now, I'm not quite so certain about our two leopard geckos. Um, They're awesome, but they're not really interested in playing hockey on the pond with us. Um, So, I don't know. But the rest of my family brings me joy. They bring me joy. But as you know, we as parents have times when our kids produce the opposite of joy in our lives. And God forbid we can lose someone we love to an illness or an accident, and then where's our joy? Things go wrong. People hurt us. The enemy takes shots at us. We get bad news. Our circumstances change for the worse. And our joy ebbs and flows with those circumstances. Sometimes joy and sometimes sorrow. Of course it does. You can't just fake joy your way through those down times, can you? Jesus is not promising that the joy we find in all those things and people cannot be taken from us. He's not saying that. So we can't let ourselves get disillusioned when someone or something steals the joy that we once had in something in our lives. Jesus is talking to his disciples about them not seeing him and then seeing him again. He will leave and they'll be sad. Then they'll see him again and they'll have joy. So when will they not see him? When he's been crucified and buried. It was about to happen. And when will they see him again? When he rises from the dead and they see his victory over death. Then they'll have joy and no one will be able to take that joy from them. So does that mean that those who saw Jesus after his resurrection would be the only people in history to have that joy that cannot be taken away from them? No way. That joy, the one that we cannot lose, was intended for followers of Jesus throughout history. And yes, that means today, that means me, that means you. And I want joy in my life. I would love to experience joy every day. We were created by God to experience joy. 
And there are many days when we do experience joy, but there are also many days when we don't. And I believe that there never has to be even one day when we go through the day without experiencing joy. How? I think Jesus makes it clear that joy unstealable can only be found in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our Savior Jesus defeated death forever. When he walked out of that tomb and took away the sting of death, Jesus provided us with a joy that can never, ever be taken from us. There isn't one circumstance in our lives that can change the fact that Jesus overcame death, he overcame the world, and we can now enter into the life that he won for those who choose him. No one can take the joy of his resurrection away from us. Jesus won, and we won with him. We won freedom from the penalty of sin. We won freedom from death. We won meaning and purpose in God's presence and freedom from guilt and regret. And my list could go on and on and on. We won life. We won eternal life. Jesus won. We won. And there's joy in that, isn't there? Well, yeah, but somebody made a discouraging remark on my post last week, so I'm just not experiencing joy. Nor will you if that's where you're drawing your joy from. Church, draw on a well that will never run dry. Draw on a resource that is untouchable. Joy can be found and kept in the resurrection of Jesus. That joy can never be taken away from us. Never. So Jesus mentions that joy again in the next couple of verses. Here is verse 23 and 24. Jesus says, In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. We've covered that before when he said it earlier. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Okay, so keep in mind, that Jesus' disciples are still in a state of confusion here. He's still speaking in figures of speech. So they don't pause at this point and celebrate the joy that they could find in the resurrection. They didn't know that. They had no idea what he was talking about. They didn't know he was talking about the resurrection. Jesus is explaining that they were going to be able to talk directly with God and ask him for what they needed. And remember that there was still a veil hanging in the temple that separated man from God. Only priests could enter under very specific circumstances. That veil would soon be torn in two, but it wasn't yet. So the disciples are hearing now that they would be able to ask God anything directly, still confusing. How could this be? The joy of the resurrection could be experienced in full when they would be able to speak to God directly and present their requests to him, requests that aligned with his will. And yes, that means that prayer is also something in which we can find a joy that cannot be taken from us because we can speak to God directly and there is joy in that. 
In verse 25 to 30, Jesus clarifies for the disciples what he's been saying about who he is. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. And he's really clear now. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you're speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you came from God. So this was the aha moment for them. Jesus actually said that he had come from God and was about to return to God. That was where he was going. That was an explanation for them. That was where he was going. There may have been more factors involved than just Jesus' words. Maybe their eyes were opened at that moment by God. Whatever it was, they now got it. And what a way to help them understand. Jesus tells them that they're going to talk directly to God. And not only was God open to that, God loved them and invited them to do that. And the disciples responded appropriately. We believe that you came from God. You know all things and no one needs to question you. And their identity as Christ followers was affirmed in their words. They were on board with this. But this identity would lead to some tension for them. They couldn't quite see that yet. Verses 31 and 32. Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered each to his own home and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. Now on some level it may seem like Jesus is just shaming them about what's going to happen, but I don't think that's what's going on here. Some scholars believe that Jesus was scolding his disciples with the words, do you now believe? They think he was being sarcastic. Um, I don't. I think he could have been smiling when he said it, but with one of those sad smiles. It had to be hard for Jesus to go so long with these guys and they still couldn't see it. Imagine how much more they could have supported him if they knew all along what was going to happen to him. But they didn't know until just then. On the other hand, and I think this is what kept Jesus going, Jesus knew all along what was going to happen to them. And I don't mean just them scattering. I mean them laying their lives down for the gospel of Jesus and carrying on his ministry so well and so effectively. I think this was about what Jesus knew, not what they knew. And his hope wasn't in them and in their companionship. His hope wasn't in their bravery, the level of courage that they would have. It wasn't in their devotion to him. It was in his father's devotion to him. He wouldn't be alone when they scattered. His father would be with them. And there's another lesson for us here. We can't put our hope in our fellow man's devotion to us. But we can And should put our hope in God's devotion to us. It's absolute. 
Finally, we come to the last verse in our passage, verse 33. Jesus says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. With all that's about to happen, Jesus speaks very compassionately to his disciples. He's not concerned for himself. He's concerned for them. He's aware of the fact that they will scatter and leave him alone, but he's concerned that they can still find peace in the midst of what's about to happen. And yes, this is the Irene peace that we've been talking about. They can have that peace in him, even though they will scatter when the pressure comes and their circumstances will be a mess. They can still have peace in Christ. Jesus speaks with understanding of their future. They will have tribulation. Things are going to get hard, really hard. All but one of them would die a martyr's death for following Jesus. He knows that. He knows how much they will suffer. He knows the fear that will grip them when they see his beaten body taken down from the cross and buried. Everything they've lived for will be challenged. But take heart, he says. Take heart. Be courageous. Chin up. Be of good cheer. This won't be a loss. This will be a victory. The world won't win. In spite of appearances, Jesus will win. I have overcome the world, he says. Did you see that this is written in past tense? Not I will overcome the world. I have overcome the world. Well, think back to the seven signs that we've pointed to in John. Jesus turned the water to wine. He healed the official's son. He healed the man at the pool. He fed the 5,000. He walked on water. He healed the blind man. And Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Jesus already overcame the world. And let me give you an important definition of the word overcome. It means to deprive the world of its power to harm. To subvert its influence. That's what Jesus meant when he said, I have overcome the world. The world cannot destroy us. It cannot overtake us because Jesus already took away its power to do that. It doesn't have that much influence on us because Jesus took that influence away, even death's influence. Now, John wrote more than just this book. He wrote some letters as well. In one of those letters, listen to what God directed him to write. In 1 John 5, verses 4 and 5, John writes, For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that has overcome the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Um, church, according to Jesus... We will have tribulation in this world. I think we get that. But Jesus says we're to take heart, to have courage. Why? Because Jesus already overcame the world. And why else? Well, because as those living in Christ, abiding in the vine, we are also overcomers. 
We have overcome the world. So, so I want you to say this with me. We're going to say together the words, I have overcome the world. Don't be afraid of this because it's truth. Don't be like, well, not really. I want you to say this with me. Ready? I have overcome the world. That's truth, church. By placing our hope in Christ and finding our joy in his resurrection, we have overcome the world. It has been stripped of its power over us. Because Jesus overcame the world and because we have overcome the world, how then will we live today, tomorrow, and the rest of our lives? What does this enormous truth mean for us? How does it affect our experience of life day in and day out? Well, I'm determined to seek and find my joy in the resurrection of Jesus. I'm determined to experience that joy, a joy that cannot be taken from me. I'm gonna seek that joyful life that Jesus offers me. I'm determined to live like I'm alive in a world filled with death. I'm going to live as if Jesus just walked out of that grave right before my eyes. I'm determined to live like the world needs me because I know this truth. I'm determined to live in peace because Jesus' peace is my peace. He gave it to me. I'm determined to live like the world cannot defeat me. I am an overcomer. I have overcome the world because I am in Jesus and Jesus has overcome the world. No one can take this away from me. No one can steal my joy. No one can disrupt this peace. No circumstance has power over me. No one can take this life from me because when Jesus walked out of that grave so did I when death was arrested my life began and no one can take that life from me yeah that's truth church I haven't punched this in a long time (laughs) now I'm preaching like my dad church we live in this truth Not that I have joy today and I have no joy tomorrow. Not I had peace for a few minutes while I was in church and then on the way home I lost it. Not, boy, in this building do I feel like an overcomer and at work I feel like I'm squashed. This is us all the time because we live in Jesus We've been invited into that, to live in Christ. You can't argue with the fact that Jesus overcame the world. Boy, it's easy to argue with the fact that we overcame the world. If we're doing it on our own, then we lose. But in Christ's church, we've overcome the world. And we live that life, a life of joy, a life of peace, a life of purpose and meaning, a life with a secure identity because this is who we are. We have a joy that no one can take from us. We have a peace that no one can take from us. 
And we are, by definition, by position, by title, we have been awarded the title overcomers. We have overcome the world because Jesus overcame the world. Live that way. Today, tomorrow, the next day, all week, and the week after that, and the year after that, and the rest of your life. Jesus won. So did we. Because we're in him. I'm going to invite the ushers to come up now and we'll close our time together and have the worship team come as well. And in our time with God this morning as we just pause and focus on him and have a little conversation with him, will you please declare some truth in front of your God, your Father this morning? Let's pray together. Father, I thank you so much for giving us a very, very clear understanding that you're aware of what's going on. Thank you for speaking through your son, Jesus, the words, in this life, you will have tribulation. That right there is assuring. That you know Do you know that there are tribulations? They come personally. They come in little things. They come in big things, in plane crashes and senseless shootings. In words that are spoken to us and acts that are done to us that take away our joy, that disrupt our peace, that, that cause us to question our identity and our value, Thank you that you know that. And so you didn't leave us alone in this. You sent Jesus to overcome the world and then invited us to live in him. Branches attached to the vine. And through that abiding, we step up into the position of overcomers. And God, I want to lift up this church family to you this morning. And in every single thing that they're facing, in every emotion that they're dealing with, in every circumstance that they're going through, in everything that represents this world and its crushing impact on us, I ask that you would pull them out of that place of darkness and despair and sorrow and focus their eyes and their hearts and their minds on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. On him walking out of that tomb and declaring for all of eternity that death has lost its sting. That as we are grafted into the vine and become a part of your family, we become overcomers. And I pray, Lord, that you would give them right now the spirit of an overcomer. That you would fill them with that joy that cannot be taken from them. That you will give them that peace that they can only attribute to you. God, I thank you for this gift. I thank you for this 
power, this strength that comes in knowing who we are in you. And this world tries so hard to distract us from that, and we barely have time in any given day to even think about that reality, but it's there. It's ours to stand on. It's a promise that we can hold on to. It's a position that we can take. It's, an, it's a bottomless well that we can draw from every single day. Jesus won, so we win, because we're in Christ. Thank you for that assurance, for that promise, for that strength, that joy, and that peace. Thank you that you have given us life, new life. It began when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. God, we are yours, and we receive with gratitude what you've given us. Help us to live in that reality no matter what we're facing. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.